Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features William Kent Kruger at Carver County Library, Chanhassen. Minnesota boasts more than its fair share of homegrown mystery novelists, and William Kent Kruger ranks near the top of that list for many. He is best known for his 16-book Cork O'Connor series, set in the state's forested and isolated Arrowhead region. O'Connor, a cop turned sheriff and private investigator, burst onto the scene in Iron Lake in 1998. This debut won Kruger a rare honor, both the Anthony Award and the Barry Award for Best First Novel. Subsequent installments have won too many honors to name, including five Minnesota Book Awards. Moreover, Kruger has penned two acclaimed standalone novels, The Devil's Bed in 2001 and Ordinary Grace in 2013. O'Connor's 16th and latest adventure, Sulphur Springs, offers a departure from the verdant Northwoods setting readers associate with the series. After receiving a cryptic voicemail from his stepson, Kruger's dogged protagonist travels to Arizona and finds himself embroiled with the area's dangerous drug cartels. The Star Tribune lauds it as a blistering Wild West mystery. Well, thank you so much for coming out this evening, folks. It's a pleasure to be here and a pleasure to be a part uh, of Melsa's Book Club. Um, you know, I do a lot of library events, and if you've heard me speak at a library before, I'm going to ask you to be patient with me because I'm going to repeat a story you have probably heard me tell before. Libraries are near and dear to my heart, and I want to tell you uh, a little story about, about why that might be. So here it is. When I was uh, 12 years old, the summer between my sixth and seventh grade year, I was a Boy Scout. And that was the summer I decided I was going to get my reading merit badge. Now, uh, one of the requirements for the reading merit badge, at least back then, was, uh, was you had to spend some time volunteering at your local library. I was living in a little town in Ohio at that point. So I went to the librarian and I made the, the, uh, the arrangements. And when the time came, I showed up to do my duty. Now, this was long before they had computerized check-in and check-out. Do you guys remember that little envelope thing that used to be glued inside the back cover of every book? Okay. So what they did was they put me, you know, someday I'm going to be speaking to an audience and they won't have any idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> 
So they put me to work date stamping the returned book. So they gave me this little black ink pad and a little rubber changeable date stamp. And so for the first hour I was there, it was sort of ka-chunk, 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 ka-chunk. And after about an hour of that, the, uh, the librarian walked my way and proceeded to ask me that question that, because I was afraid she was going to ask me, I pretty much knew she would. She said to me, Kent, what do you like to read? <laughs> well, the honest to God truth was, I like to read comic books. <laughs> but I didn't want to tell her that. Uh, so I briefly considered lying to her, but there was that whole, a scout is trustworthy thing going on. So I told her the truth. And without batting an eye, she said to me, have you ever read The Count of Monte Cristo? So I walked out of the library that day with that great Dumas classic under my arm and I came back several days later and checked out the Three Musketeers and after that it was The Man in the Iron Mask. And when I'd read everything that our little library had by Dumas, I asked her, what should I read next? And she turned me on to H.G. Wells and Jules Verne and Arthur Conan Doyle and Jack London and Robert Louis Stevenson and all these guys who wrote these great stories that were perfect for capturing a boy's heart and a boy's imagination. I don't know what you guys think of your librarians. I don't think of them just as those people who, uh, who keep the books on the shelves in the right order or, or maybe give us a hard time when we return them late. I think of librarians as, in a very real way, as important guides in our understanding of the world, particularly when we're young, and they direct us toward those books that help us understand the world in a better way. I think of libraries as the archives of our culture. These are the, the places that house the books that are so important to us in helping us understand who we are. They help us understand where we came from, who we were. They help us understand where we are now. And maybe even they point the direction to where we're going, who we may become. When our libraries and our librarians are gone, there goes everything we are as a culture. So the first thing I want to ask you to do this evening is join me in giving a hand to our librarians. And I want to give a shout out to Common Good Books, one of the best independent bookstores in our area. They do a fine job and, uh, and they need to be supported, so you should buy lots of copies tonight. <laughs> okay, um, a quick question before I launch into my prepared remarks. Um, is there anybody here who's never read a William Kent Kruger novel? Oh, a few of you, good, good, get out. <laughs> I'm funning with you. I always ask that question of an audience because I never want to assume everybody here knows who I am and, and what the hell it is that I do. So my first minute of remarks are for those of you who raised a hand. I do publish under that very literary three-name thing, William Kent Kruger, but I go by Kent. So if we have a chance to talk uh, this evening, feel free to call me Kent. I live in St. Paul. I have now for uh, um, 40, almost 40 years now with my wife of, in March. In nine days, it will be my wife of 45 years. Uh, yeah. My children are in St. Paul. My grandson is in St. Paul. Oh, God, do I love St. Paul. <laughs> I'm probably best known as the author of the Cork O'Connor mystery. Wait a minute. I'm probably best known as the author of the, I love saying this, 
New York Times best-selling Quark O'Connor <laughs> mystery series, which is set in the great north woods of Minnesota. My protagonist, Quark O'Connor, is a man of mixed heritage. He's part Irish American and he's part Ojibwe. Because of that mixture in his heritage, and largely because of the area in which I've chosen to set my work, a lot of the stories that I write come from issues that rise out of the interface of those two cultures, white and Ojibwe. So I've written about Indian gaming casinos and the effect that that's had both on the Ojibwe community and the surrounding white community. Uh, I've written about, well, the ongoing battle we have in Minnesota over hunting and fishing treaty rights. Uh, I've written about the influx of the drug and the gang cultures on the reservation. Always at some level in my work, I try to deal with the whole question of racial prejudice. Uh, the first book in that series was a book called Iron Lake. I published that in 1998. Iron Lake was followed by Boundary Waters, Purgatory Ridge, Blood Hollow, Mercy Falls, Copper River, Thunder Bay, Red Knife, Heaven's Keep, Vermilion Drift, Northwest Angle, Trickster's Point, Tamarack County, uh, Wendigo Island, Manitou Canyon, and last August, number 16 in the series, Sulphur Springs came out. I just finished number 17 in the series, a novel called uh, Desolation Mountain, which will be out next August. Now, I also have two standalones. Uh, a very long time ago, uh, a book called The Devil's Bed, which in the business we refer to as a standalone thriller. And in 2013, I published a novel called Ordinary Grace. Best thing I've ever written. It may be the best thing I will ever write. You know, I do a lot of events because I like talking about myself. <laughs> or I used to. I got to be honest with you. I don't interest me much anymore. <laughs> so what I want to talk about this evening is something that does interest me, something about which I continue to be passionate. I want to talk about stories, their importance to me, their importance to you, their importance to all of us. And I'm going to begin with uh, what's going to seem on the surface like a very simple question. Here it is. You ready? Here it is. How many of you think you know how the Bible begins? Simple question, right? How many of you think you know how the Bible begins. Okay. Well, I'm guessing those of you bold enough to raise a hand probably think the Bible begins this way, depending upon the translation, but you probably think the Bible begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I have a different take on this. I think the Bible begins before you read that first line. I think it begins even before you crack the cover on that great spiritual text. I think the Bible begins with this seductive whisper that comes to you from the book itself. And what it whispers to you is this. Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. Because isn't that what the Bible is? It's, it's a collection of some of the greatest stories ever told. It's the story of the creation. It's the story of Noah and the great flood. It's the story of Moses in the Exodus, of Daniel in the lion's den, of, uh, of David in the hot water he gets himself into with God because of Bathsheba. And the New Testament, it's that beautiful Christmas story of the birth of Jesus. And it's the tragic story uh, of his betrayal and crucifixion. And it's the glorious story of the resurrection. Story after story after story. And just think for a moment. Three of the world's great religions all draw inspiration from many of the same stories. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Um, I got a, 
an email from a guy not too long ago uh, writing to tell me how much he enjoyed Ordinary Grace. And because Ordinary Grace deals with the minister and sermons, he had a few things, this guy had a few things he wanted to, to say about sermons as well. And, uh, and so basically what he said to me was this, uh, uh, Dear Kent, I, um, I uh, go to a Unitarian church. Our minister is a wonderful, intelligent woman who gives terrific sermons. But the truth is this. When I get home and think about what she said, all I remember are the stories she told. You know? I don't know about you guys, but that sure rings true for me. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to guess that most of us here this evening didn't come to an understanding of morality as a result of something we heard from the pulpit or, or as the result of some you know, intellectual discussion of Thomas Aquinas and, and, and Kierkegaard. I think our first inklings of right and wrong came from stories that we heard or were read to us when we were children and that had an impact on us. That's certainly true in my case. The first time I can remember having an idea about what it was to do the right thing came from a book that was read to me when I was five years old and was written by a guy who called himself Dr. Seuss. <laughs> the book, Horton Hatches the Egg. Now, for those of you who may not remember that great moral treatise, it goes like this. It begins with this lazy bird named Maisie who's sitting on an egg in a nest waiting for the egg to hatch. Maisie is bored out of her mind. She would rather be anywhere else than sitting on that egg waiting for it to hatch. And along comes um, Horton, who is really a good-hearted elephant. And Maisie convinces Horton to give her a break. Sit on that egg for a little while while she takes a rest. So Horton settles that huge bulk of his on that fragile little egg. And just before Maisie takes off, he, promises, he makes this promise to her. He promises her absolutely that he will be there when she returns. But Maisie has no intention of ever coming back. So there Horton sits night and day through all kinds of horrible weather. The other animals of the jungle make fun of him. Uh, one day some hunters come along and they're so amazed to see this huge elephant sitting on this fragile little egg that instead of shooting him, they capture Horton and they take him and the egg and the nest and the tree they're all in and they go across the ocean and they sell Horton to a circus as a sideshow exhibit. And through all of this horrific experience, Horton is held to this beautiful little mantra that he continues to repeat to himself, I meant what I said and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful, 100%. So one day, Maisie's flying around. She spots Horton down there. So she, she circles down to him. And about the time she gets to Horton, the egg hatches. And out comes not a Maisie bird, but a beautiful little elephant bird that looks exactly like Horton. And at the end of the story, Horton and his little hatchling head off for home, and Horton is happy 100%. <laughs> Faithfulness. The importance of keeping the promises that we make. I learned that at five from an elephant named Horton. And of course, then after that, I had to read Horton Hears a Who, from which I learned, a person's a person, no matter how small, which has always seemed to me a philosophy that if we really lived by it would make the world such a better place. You know, I learned a lot.
from Horton about what it was to be a, a good elephant. And I also learned a lot about it was to, what it was to be a, a good human being. You know, you've seen those bumper stickers out there, WWJD, what would Jesus do? I have a bumper sticker on my car, WWHD, what would Horton do? <laughs> Jesus. Jesus understood the power of stories. How did Jesus teach? If you believe the Gospels, Jesus taught in parables, simple stories with a profound eternal truth at their hearts. Uh, depending upon how, how you characterize them, most scholars agree that there are more than 30 parables recounted in the Gospels. And we know, we know a lot of them, you know, the, the parable of the sower, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the Good Samaritan. My favorite parable is the parable of the prodigal son. I love it as a, well, for those of you who have never gone to church, I'm not going to ask you to raise a hand. Or you may have forgotten the parable of the prodigal son. It goes like this. Uh, a wealthy landowner decides he's going to sell some of his holdings and divide the proceeds between his two sons. So he does this. One son takes the money, puts it away, and continues to stay in the community and do what his father and his community expects of him. The other son takes that money and he goes off. And he, uh, he begins to live a dissolute life. He becomes a wastrel, so much so that he finds himself deeply in debt. And he's just about to sell himself into slavery to pay that debt when he decides he's going to go back and prostrate himself before his father and beg for forgiveness. Long before the son reaches his father, word of his arrival comes to, comes to the father. And the father orders a great feast prepared in honor of his, his prodigal son. Now the good son is really miffed. He says, Dad, I... You know, I stayed, I did what I was supposed to do, and you never, you never held a feast in my honor. And the father says to him, I love you both equally. What I'm celebrating is the fact that a child was lost to me, and now he's found. I love that story from, as a storyteller, because it's a story that can be seen from so many different perspectives. It can be seen as the, as the father's story, the story of this man who believes he's lost his son, and, and he is so overjoyed when that son is returned to him. How many of us who are parents can't relate to that, that idea? Uh, or it can be seen as the story of, the, of the, the good son who did what he was supposed to do, and he, and he's really unhappy that he doesn't get due, uh, due credit for that. Or it can be seen as the story of the prodigal son who goes off and, and makes all of these horrible choices and in the end wants nothing more than to come back home and be embraced and forgiven by his father. Or it can be seen as the, as the whole dynamic of this interesting, uh, this interesting family. But I love it for another reason. And that's because I have a prodigal son story of my own, or in my case, it's the story of the prodigal sister. So, my sister married a sociopath. This, this guy was certifiably nuts. We all knew it, and later on she admitted that she did too, but she went ahead and married him anyway. And things progressed pretty much as you might expect. He was unfaithful to her, he lied, they split up, they got back together, and they finally divorced. Which left my sister in California all alone trying to raise a very young daughter all by herself. Now I was living here, my wife and I were living here in the Twin Cities with my parents. 
uh, while my wife went to, to law school. And when my father learned of my sister's situation, he called a family council. We all sat down and he, he said, what do you want to do? And he said, I think we should invite her to come and stay with us. My response to that suggestion was not my finest hour. <laughs> I, was like the, uh, I was like the good son. I was kind of miffed. I said, now wait a minute. She, she knew what she was getting herself into. She made her bed, let her lie in it. But my father counseled forgiveness and unconditional love. And in the end, his wise counsel prevailed. And my sister and her daughter came to live with us. And I gotta tell you, I, I never fully appreciated my father's wisdom until I had grown children of my own and they went out and screwed up in their own ways <laughs> and really needed a lot of forgiveness. You know, we think of stories as entertainment, but clearly stories do more than that. They enlighten us as well, but they do even more. They encourage us. I don't know how many of you know the story of Robert the Bruce and the persistent little spider. It was a story my father told me when I was quite young, and I've always remembered it. For those of you who don't know the story, it goes like this. Robert the Bruce ascended to the Scottish throne in 1306, and this was back when uh, Scotland was still under the tyrannical rule of England, and they'd been trying forever to, to, to free themselves from England. Um, if you remember the movie Braveheart, it's the story of William Wallace who leads the, the Scots against England. and. Uh, and if you saw the movie, you know how that turned out for William Wallace. So when Wallace is, uh, uh, fails and Robert the Bruce ascends to the Scottish throne, he takes up that struggle for freedom. And twice, he leads his army against the English. And twice, he's defeated. And after that second defeat, he, uh, he takes off for the Scottish Highlands with the, the English on his tail. And Robert the Bruce, so the story goes, one night while he's on the lamb, seeks shelter in an abandoned Scottish cottage, stone cottage. And while he's there licking his wounds and, and resting up and trying to figure out what the hell he's gonna do next, he happens to look in the rafters above him and he sees a spider trying to spin a web. And the spider is attempting to throw a thread from one rafter to the next to form the foundation for the, the web it intends to spin. And six times it casts its thread and six times it fails, but on the seventh, it succeeds and begins to spin a beautiful web. And Robert the Bruce, so the story goes, taking encouragement from that little spider, decides he's going to take to the field of battle one more time, lead his army against the English, and he does. And this time, he wins. He frees Scotland. It's a great story. Is it true? Who cares? It's a great story with an important point at the heart of it. So stories entertain us and they enlighten us and they encourage us. But maybe the most important thing that stories do for us is they inspire us. I'm going to tell you uh, about inspiration and a great piece uh, of writing. Um, unfortunately, inspiration in the end gone terribly awry. So, when I was in the fifth grade, our teacher, toward the end of that year, read to our class 
The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. She did it for half an hour every day after lunch. I loved that book. I mean, here was this kid who was just like me. He was having all of these great adventures there on the Mississippi River. Uh, now, we were living at that point on a farm outside a small town, and there was a creek that ran through our, our property. It was Riley Creek, and on the other side of Riley Creek was another farmhouse where the Gratz family lived, and the Gratzes had two boys who were, the youngest was my age and the older was my brother's age. So, when the, um, the uh, school year was finished, I pitched to the Gratz boys and my brother the idea of building a raft and setting sail on Riley Creek. Now, two miles down the creek, the, it ran through the town where we all went to school, and two miles beyond that, it emptied into a, a huge river that, if we followed it, would take us all the way to Lake Erie. It was a, it was a great scheme, <laughs> and they bought it. So, we spent several days scavenging wood and, and pounding it together with nails, and sometimes we had to lash it with twine. And when our little creation was finally together, we took it down to, to Riley Creek, and we put it in the water beneath the bridge that spanned the creek, and we hung a rope down so that we could get down to, to the raft. And then we drew straws to see who was going to go down and test our little creation. My brother drew the long straw. So he kicked off his high-topped kids. Our mother would have killed us if he'd come home with wet, muddy, muddy uh, sneakers. He rolled up his pants, and he started down the rope. When he got to the raft, he held, he held firmly to the rope and put out one bare foot to test that raft. It held. Still holding firmly to the rope, he put out the other bare foot, and the raft held. Well, he decided it was time to give it a shot, so he let go of the, of the rope. And the raft immediately disappeared beneath the brown water of Riley Creek. And just before it went under, it tipped, and, and my brother went uh, down and disappeared beneath the brown water of Riley Creek, which really wasn't too terrible because it was only like two and a half, three feet deep at that point. Uh, and he came up uh, wet and, and covered with, uh, with mud from the bottom of the creek. And, uh, and that was pretty much the end of our grand expedition. <laughs> but I've taken two things away from that experience. And the first was this. No matter how hard I might imagine it, Riley Creek was never going to be the Mississippi River. <laughs> and the other was this, an image I have carried across my entire life of the biggest, blackest leech <laughs> I have ever seen, which had attached itself to my brother's bare foot. It was the only time I'd, I've ever heard him scream like a baby, <laughs> and I never let him forget it. <laughs> you know, stories, stories have been important to us ever since we first learned how to communicate with one another as human beings. Across countless millennia, stories have entertained us, and they've, they've enlightened us, and, and encouraged us, and inspired us. I have to tell you, I... I have come to believe, really, I have come to believe that stories are every bit as important to us as breathing. And as a storyteller, I believe this. The most seductive, the most promising, maybe even the most important words we're ever going to hear are these. Let me tell you a story.
let me tell you a story. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for William Kent Kruger and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how William Kent Kruger came up with his characters. What was that process like? Uh, you know, it was an evolutionary process. <laughs> when I sat down to write Iron Lake, the guy I knew most was Cork O'Connor, the guy that was going to be at the heart of that story. Here's, here's the story behind Cork himself. Long before uh, I had an idea of a story I wanted to write, I had an idea for a guy. And in that initial seed of an idea, all I knew about him was that he was going to be the kind of guy who was so resilient that no matter how far life pushed him down, he would always bob back to the surface. And his name was going to be Cork. <laughs> swear to God, swear to God, that's the truth. <laughs> so I, I told that to an audience not too long ago, and one of the guys in the audience said, why didn't you just call him Bob? <laughs> So I knew what kind of a guy Cork was going to be. Then when I, I really began to develop the storyline and think about Cork, um, I thought about what do I know? I wanted to write a character that I, I could relate to. Who, I could invest my own experience in who this man was. And I'm a family man, so I knew Cork was going to be a family man. Um, I knew Cork was going to be a guy who, who had certain solid beliefs that he held to. Cork believes in justice, I believe in justice. Cork believes that, uh, that you make commitments, and come hell or high water, you stand by those commitments. That's what I believe. Cork believes that, um, that on, in our life on this earth, family is probably the most significant relationship we're really gonna know, and that's, that's what I believe. So Cork, I knew, was gonna be at heart who I was. But I knew he had to be a lot that I wasn't. Um, I knew I was going to write a mystery, and, uh, and I, th I thought at first that I would make Cork the sheriff of the fictional Tamarack County. But that meant that I was going to have to learn a whole lot about law enforcement, and I didn't want to do the research. <laughs> so I thought, okay, he used to be sheriff. <laughs> and then I had to figure out why he wasn't sheriff anymore. So I came up with that storyline. Um, and in, in truth, I was in a really low point in my own life when I began that, that story, and I began Cork in a really low point in his own life. Um, and I knew, his, I knew he his, uh, had a sense of his wife, who I wanted, her, I wanted her to be a strong character, I wanted her to be a lawyer, a blonde attorney. My wife's a blonde attorney. <laughs> She's a lot nicer than Joe was to, to Cork. Uh, Cork has three children, I have two. Um, so I began developing characters that I knew from my own experience. And then when I began to write about the adjunct characters, they're all sort of, almost none of them are, are taken whole cloth from real people. But they're bits and pieces of real people. The one character in my stories whose appearance 
I simply cannot explain is Henry Malou, the old me day. I have no idea where Henry Malou came from. Um, for me, he's just one of those blessings that come to you as a storyteller. Uh, he came pretty much full-blown. I've developed him since the first novel. Wasn't quite sure how to use him, and then he began to show me how to use him, I think. Um, but he was just a blessing that came to me, and I've tried not to question where, where that blessing came from. So, so across the course of the 15 uh, years that, that, that spanned the lives, the series spanned the lives in, in uh, Cork and his family, um, they've grown and they've changed, and that's one of the things that keeps the story interesting for me, that, that journey that I'm on with the O'Connor clan is one of the things that I just love about the writing. This question comes from an audience member asking about Kruger's decision to write Sulphur Springs in first person rather than third person, which is usually how the Cork O'Connor novels are told. The vast majority of the Cork O'Connor novels are written in third person, either um, um, limited third person, all from Cork's point of view, or what we call uh, multiple third person, seen from several points of view. Sulphur Springs is different. It's entirely from Cork's in Cork's voice. It's, first, it's a first-person narrative. Now, I did that once before in a novel called Thunder Bay. The first third and the last third of that story are written in Cork's voice. He tells the story. The middle third, which is Malou's story, is done in third person. Um, and I, I kind of like that. <laughs> what I wanted was Sulphur Springs is really an intimate story. For those of you who don't know Sulphur Springs, it, uh, it begins with, uh, with Cork in his third month of marriage to his second wife, Rainy Bissonette. And Cork still feels a little like he's on a honeymoon. But those of us who, who have been married, we know that those first few months of any marriage can be enlightening. <laughs> in so many ways. So Cork is still discovering lots of things about this, this new wife of his. On the 4th of July, Rennie gets a, a voicemail from her son Peter, who is living in Arizona. It's a garbled message, but what Cork and Rennie are able to discern is, is that Peter has killed a man and he needs their help. So they race down to southern Arizona, but when they get to Sulphur Springs, the small town where they believe Peter has been living, Nobody there claims to know anything about him. And as Cork begins to dig deeper and deeper into the mystery of his vanishing, he begins to suspect more and more that Rini knows a lot more about what's going on than she lets on. He begins to suspect that she's keeping secrets from him, dark secrets about her past, secrets that may in the end prove lethal to them both. So I wanted this to be an intimate story about Cork and his relationship with this woman he loves, but his is wondering how well does he really know her. And I thought the best way to do that would be to be in Cork's head so that, uh, so that we feel everything as he's feeling it, that the doubt, that, that pull of love and that pull of doubt. And as he and Rainey do this, this dance that's so necessary in any relationship that hopefully is gonna bring them to a place of profound trust, which is necessary in, in every long-term relationship. So it was the intimacy that I wanted in that story that dictated first person. 
Plus, I just wanted to do something different, you know? <laughs> Keep myself interested. So there you go. This question is what brought William Kent Kruger to Minnesota? Moved here when I was about 30 years old so that my wife could go to the University of Minnesota Law School. Um, before that, I was a gypsy kid. I lived all over the place. I never really had anywhere that I, that I called or thought of as home. But I swear to God, the minute I set foot in Minnesota, oh my God, did I fall in love with this place. Um, so, uh, so we came to Minnesota for my wife's job, but we stayed because of, of what Minnesota is and who the people in Minnesota are. One of the reasons we chose Minnesota was we were so impressed with the values that uh, the people of Minnesota seem to, seem to then and continue to espouse. We are a compassionate people here, and I love that about us. Uh, we take care of one another. We take care of strangers, and I love that about us. I love the fact that education was a profound uh, value here. Um, so, came for law school, stayed for so many other reasons. This audience member asks about the reaction Kruger has received from the Native American community he writes about in his novels. Here's why I write about the Ojibwe, the Anishinaabeg. Shortly after we moved here, we began doing what so many people in the Twin Cities do in the summer. We began vacationing up north in the beautiful North Country. We began spending a portion of, uh, of our summers at a YMCA camp north of Ely, a place called Camp du Nord, which is, for those of you who don't know it, it's literally across the road from the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. And when I discovered that remarkable uh, territory, I thought, oh my God, somebody should be writing stories about this place. So I always knew that when I got serious, it was gonna be, um, I was going to set my writing in, in the, the Arrowhead region, Great North Woods. When I took a really good look at northern Minnesota, I realized you can't tell a story set up there without including the Ojibwe as an element of the work, because their influence up there is ubiquitous. It's everywhere and it's powerful. What did I know about them at that point? About the same amount you guys know about this, this culture that, that we live so close to. I knew nothing. But I was a cultural anthropology major in college. And so the idea of, of learning about a culture not my own was really exciting to me. So I began, do, I began in a very academic way. I began by reading. I read everything I could get my hands on. I read the early ethnographies. I read, uh, they were written by uh, William Warren and Francis Densmore. I read, uh, I read um, Gerald Visnor, who writes beautifully about Ojibwe myth, and Basil Johnson, a Shinab out of Canada, who writes about Ojibwe ritual, among other things. I read Louise Erdrich. I read uh, Jim Northrup. I read everything I could get my hands on. And when I thought I had a pretty good grasp of the Ojibwe culture, I sat down and began to, to write Iron Lake. Now, in all of that research, I began to meet folks who were, in fact, Ojibwe and began to form relationships that exist to this day. And over time, this bond of trust that we've established um, has become very important in my work. I appreciate the perspective that they're willing to share with me. Um, whenever deadlines allow, I always have at least one Ojibwe reader read and vet my manuscript so they don't say anything that's too stupid, or worse, offensive. And the result is, is that I've had a tremendous 
positive response from the Ojibwe community. Um, so here's, uh, here's an example. I had uh, an email come to me a while back that went like this. Dear Mr. Kruger, I am the uh, librarian for the Tribal Library on the Lance Reservation, which is, uh, or Lance Reservation, which is up in the UP of Michigan. She said, when any of, our, when any of our tribal members come in and they don't really know what they want to read, I always recommend your work. Before, because for a white guy, you, you do a pretty good job. <laughs> So, uh, so the response has been um, really gratifying in, in that regard. You know, I, try, I, I am so painfully aware that I'm a white guy trespassing on a culture not my own. And I work hard to get it right. But I also work hard to um, dispel a lot of prejudices that are out there. And so, you know, I talk to people and they tell me, you know, Indians are drunks and Indians are lazy and Indian men beat their, their wives. And, and, and I think, you know, and what I tell them is, you know, there are white guys who are drunks yeah. and white guys who are lazy and white guys who, who abuse their families. And we don't say they do it because they're white, you know? And so I write about Ojibwe who are nurses, and teachers, and judges, and garbage men, because that's who they are. They're just, they're just human beings like us, whose cultural perspective um, helps them to see the world in a, in a beautiful, different way than we do sometimes. This question asker notes that Kruger includes both real and fictional Minnesota towns in his novels. Is Aurora based on the real Aurora, Minnesota? No way. <laughs> My, here's why I called it Aurora. In the initial uh, manuscript for that first novel, uh, Iron Lake, the town was originally called Wendigo. Because the Wendigo was important in the story, and I love that name. But my, my editor, for a variety of reasons, wanted me to change the name of the town. So, uh, so I, I was looking for a, a name that seemed to me evocative of the North Country, and Aurora did it. So I called my editor and I said, you know, I want to call my town Aurora, but there's a real Aurora already up there, not too far from where I'm thinking my Aurora is. <laughs> Can I do that? And he said, well, you know, as long as you don't do something that's going to get us sued, you go right ahead. <laughs> my Aurora is an amalgam, really, of elements of so many of the Northwoods towns that I have come to love. I wanted to create a town that would feel real to anybody who knows the Northwoods, but they couldn't say, oh, it's Ely, or oh, it's Babbitt, or oh, it's Virginia, or oh, it's anything. Um, so after Iron Lake came out, I got an email that went like this, Dear Mr. Kruger, greetings from the librarians in Aurora, Minnesota. <laughs> we have your book and we think you've done a good job. So I happened to, uh, to have the opportunity to go up and visit Aurora, the real Aurora, and stop in at the library. And the head librarian took me into the stacks and she pulled a, a Iron Lake off the shelf and she said, whenever our, our, our patrons come in and you know, they're not sure what they want to read, we, we always recommend they read this book. She said, inevitably, they come back and say, we want to live in this Aurora. <laughs> <laughs> I have had disappointed people write to me and say, you know, I visited, I came out from Massachusetts <laughs> to see Aurora. Where's Sam's place? <laughs> you know?
Our next question is about William Kent Kruger's next standalone book. So the first standalone that most people know is not The Devil's Bed, which was my fourth published novel. It's Ordinary Grace, which is... Um, so here's the story sort of of Ordinary Grace. Then I'll talk about the, the companion novel. Ordinary Grace, for those of you who haven't read Ordinary Grace, it's very different from my Cork O'Connor series. It takes place in the summer of 1961 in a small town deep in the very beautiful Minnesota River Valley. It's the story of a Methodist minister whose beloved child is murdered. That's the compelling mystery component. But at heart, it's really the story of what that terrible tragedy does to this man's faith, his family, and ultimately the entire fabric of this small town in which he lives. Now, when I proposed that, uh, that novel to my publisher, they didn't want it. They basically set me down and said, we only want Cork O'Connor novels from you. Uh, so when I, uh, when I thought about the writing of this, this book, I knew it was going to be a risky proposition. My publisher didn't want it. I had no idea if anybody else would want it. But it was a story that was so compelling to me, I had to write it. And when it was finished, uh, even though my publisher said uh, they didn't want it, I went ahead and sent it to my editor in New York City, a wonderful woman named Sarah Branham. And about three weeks later, I got a, an email from Sarah that went something like this. Dear Kent, I've been reading the manuscript for Ordinary Grace on the subway on my way to work every morning, and I've been reading it on the subway on my way home every night. But I, I've decided I can't do that anymore because people on the subway don't understand why I'm crying. She said, I love this piece, and of course we'll publish it. And they did. And, uh, and it's done incredibly well, so well that if it continues to sell the way it's selling, it's going to outpace my Cork O'Connor series at some point. So when my publisher saw how well that book was doing, oh boy, did they want another one. <laughs> so I signed a contract for a companion novel. They paid me a shitload of money. <laughs> And I spent the next two years writing the manuscript for what I believed would be the companion novel for Ordinary Grace. Now, that manuscript was contractually due to my publisher two years ago last August. Two months before the deadline, I set up a meeting in Chicago to talk to my agent about revisions to the manuscript because there were problems with it. I knew it, she knew it. Two days before we met, I shot her, sent her a note saying, when we get together, I don't want to talk about how we're going to revise this piece. I want to talk about how we keep it from being published. Because it wasn't the story I'd imagined it would be. I didn't know how to make it that story. And frankly, I didn't have any interest in it anymore. Uh, I have a great agent. And as it turns out, a very understanding publisher. So we've renegotiated things. But here's the blessing that came from that whole experience for me. There were enormous expectations on my shoulders for that manuscript. They just weighed so heavily on me. And when the weight of all those expectations were lifted, I felt free. And I saw the story I should have been writing. And that's what I've been at work on for the last two years. A companion novel to Ordinary Grace called This Tender Land. It's not a sequel. It doesn't deal with the Drum family. I've finished their story. I call it a companion because like Ordinary Grace, it's set in southern Minnesota, and like Ordinary Grace, it's set in an earlier time. It takes place in the summer of 1932, deep in the Depression. It's the story of four orphans running from the law because they've been accused of ho horrific crimes they may not have committed. 
Um, they know that if they take to the roads to run, the cops will catch them quick. They know that if they try to take to the railroads, this is the depression, everybody's riding the rails, and the rails are patrolled heavily by these really mean guys called bulls, so they, they know they can't take to the rails. So what they do is they take to the rivers, and they go down the Cottonwood to the Minnesota, the Minnesota to the Mississippi, and their plan is to go all the way down to St. Louis, where they believe they, they will find family and safety. I have always thought of this as a, as a kind of a mashup of Charles Dickens because I talk about the conditions, um, Mark Twain because the river adventures, and there's a little bit of Homer in there too. <laughs> I mean, how can it miss? Um, I'm, I'm just having a great time with it. I'll be finished with uh, that manuscript this summer, making revisions to it, and it's scheduled for uh, publication in the fall of 2019. This audience member inquires about the character of Henry Malo and his fate. I love writing Henry Malou. I love writing the scenes in which Henry Malou plays a part because I do almost no revision of those scenes. When Henry speaks, what Henry says is exactly what Henry was supposed to say. Where does that come from? God only knows. You know, I, I do believe that as storytellers, if, we're really, if we really do truly sink ourselves deeply into the imagining of a story, we go someplace that's below conscious thought, and what we bring up are things that surprise the hell out of us. And we find ourselves asking, where did that come from? And that's Malou for me. That's Malou for me. It's just one of those blessings. Um, but Malou is over 100 years old. And he grows frailer with each story. And although I'm not going to answer your question directly, I'm going to say this. In terms of, ultimately, what's going to become of Henry Malou, you need to read the next book in the series, Desolation Mountain. Okay? That's all I'm saying. Another audience member wonders where Kruger does most of his writing. Well, I used to do it at a place, I do all my writing in coffee shops, and I used to do it at a place called the St. Clair Broiler. I wrote at the Broiler for 25 years, um, but they closed their doors last, last September, and there went a piece of my heart. But in truth, um, we had parted ways before that. But here's why I write in coffee shops. I began that process a long time ago for a very practical reason. My wife was in law school, and I suddenly became the sole support of the family. I was a guy who had to keep a roof overhead and food on the table. But I also wanted to be a writer. And so if I, if I was going to meet my responsibilities and still develop as a writer, I had to come up a way, with a way to do that. We lived two blocks at that point from the St. Clair Broiler, uh, which opened its doors every day at 6 a.m. So I told my wife, honey, if you're, if you're willing to get the kids up and get them dressed and off to school, so that I can go right first thing in the morning. I swear to you, when I come home at the end of the day from my job, I will be the best husband, the best father you can possibly imagine. She bought it. <laughs> so there I was every morning at six o'clock with my pen and my notebook at hand uh, because you know we didn't have laptops back then. They would open the doors. I'd sit down in, the, in booth number four. Uh, they would pour me my coffee, I'd open my notebook, and I, uh, from 6 to 7.15, I would write. At 7.15, I'd close my notebook, paid for my coffee, and went out uh, in front of the broiler where a bus picked me up and took me to the, to the U where I was working. So I did that for decades. 
And it did two important things for me. First of all, it helped me establish the discipline that so in, I think is so important uh, to an artist. I don't care what medium you're working in. If you're going to create anything, do any kind of work, you need to approach it in a disciplined way. But it did something that was even more important for me. And, and this, is, this is what I realized after I looked back on those years. When I went to write at the broiler first thing every morning, I was feeding something in me that needed to be fed. And it gave me the energy to go out into the world and give to it whatever I had to give to it to keep a roof overhead and food on the table. Because I'd taken care of something that was, for whatever reason, elemental to my being. Writing had become the way I realized that I centered myself in every day and created the energy to go out and meet the world. And that's still one of the most important uh, functions that my writing uh, helps me with. I still go out, my, my alarm clock goes off at a quarter of six, I get up and I go to a coffee shop and I spend the first two hours of every day, seven days a week writing. Now because it's my job full time, I go back in the afternoon for another two hours. Um, and you know, people ask me, how can you write in a place that's as noisy as a coffee shop? I can't write in a place that's quiet anymore. I've, honest to God, I've had this experience. I've been sitting at home when I've had, on a, on a winter day when I had the house to myself, can remember the snow out there beyond the window and the sun, it was all sparkly. It's exactly the kind of atmosphere you would think would be conducive to creative work. And what am I doing? I'm sitting there going, hmm, shouldn't the furnace have come on by now? You know? <laughs> I walk by the sink and uh, the dishes are calling to me to be, uh, to be washed. Phone rings, I got to answer. But in the, in the, in the coffee shop, None of, nothing that goes on is my responsibility. It's just white noise that I can sink myself deeply into for the imagining that I have to do. The last question of the night comes from an audience member asking how William Kent Kruger is able to write so visually. I'm very visual. In fact, if you read most of us who write these days, you're going to see that we write very visually because we all grew up with television and movies. And so we see things, generally speaking, in a very visual way. One of the reasons I think those of us who are storytellers are storytellers is, is that we possess the ability to be in a place and soak up the essence of that place. I take pictures whenever I'm doing uh, research. I never look at them again. You know, I have already in my, in my psyche everything I need to recreate that place. I know what it smells like and what it looks like and, and, uh, and what people are wearing and how they're talking and all of those things. And then I just, it's like I squeeze a sponge and it comes out onto the page. The, of course, the, the art comes in, in in finding the right words to make those images work. And, and that's, there is, there is, um, there is that part of what I do that is, is the work of an artisan, craftsman, and there is that part of the work that I do that really is the work of an artist. And so both come into play there. You know, folks, we've hit our time. I want to say thanks so much for coming out today. I've had a wonderful time tonight. I hope you have too. And I'll be out there to sign books for you. That wraps up our Carver County Library Chanhassen event with William Kent Kruger. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Laura Lippman at Thompson County Park, Dakota Lodge. Laura Lippman is the author of the chart-topping Tess Monahan series and 10 best-selling standalone novels. Her latest, Sunburn, 
is a psychological thriller about a pair of lovers with dark secrets and darker intentions, lauded by Booklist as an homage to classic noir. Sunburn debuted in late February. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.